welcome to today's Ramana Maharshi satsang, question and answers for two hours or however long Michael's uh, voice can hold out for us. Michael, thank you for joining us from London like you do yeah. for two full hours every month, the first Sunday of every month. And increasingly, Michael is attracting viewers who love what he says, his clarity, his depth of explanations, and they they join us from watching these programs that are recorded and put on YouTube. And there are people who want to know how to get in touch with us. So I'm going to extend an invitation to others who might see this on video on YouTube uh, to think about joining us on the first Sunday of every month. I can send the particulars to you wherever you might be living because the time wouldn't make any difference if I told you what time we meet right now. So just send uh, your inquiries to me, Ed, at newsguy55 at AOL.com, N-E-W-S-G-U-I-5-5 at AOL.com. Now, Michael, we have three people who have sent in questions that I, I, uh, I'd i like to get to first, and you and I have discussed this with emails, yeah. so I think we'll begin in the order in which you suggested, and uh, Dean is here too. He, he has the first question. I'll just read it the way he presented it to me. Right. He said, in addition to trying to follow Bhagavan's teachings, I'm a longtime frequent viewer of classic movies and a reader of fiction. Okay. Would the best course for followers of Bhagavan be to continue activities such as these, as usual, not to change anything, but to try to maintain awareness of oneself instead, the watcher or the reader when doing these activities? Would it be better instead to curtail activities that traditionally take one out of oneself? Over to you. Okay. Um, taking interest in anything other than ourself it is a distraction. It draws our attention away from ourself. But we have to be realistic and practical in this. We all come to the spiritual path with strong Vishaya Vasanas. Vishaya Vasanas means the inclination to seek happiness in Vishayas. Vishayas means objects of phenomena. In other words, anything other than ourselves. So it is the very nature of ego to always be attending to things other than itself. So self-investigation is swimming against the current, so to speak. We are going directly against the nature of ego. But though it is against the nature of ego, we are attuning ourselves with our real nature, which is just being. So it, this spiritual path is not a walk in the park. We have to overcome all our Vishaya Vasanas. Vasanas have no strength of their own. What strength the Vasanas have is what strength we give them. And we give Vasanas their strength by feeding them. That is, the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any Vishaya Vasana, the stronger that Vishaya Vasana will become. That is just the nature of um, <clears throat> the nature of these things. So we need to slowly wean our mind off its Vishaya Vasanas. But we cannot do this all at once. 
that is, we have so many Vishaya Basanas. If we try to forcibly, uh, for example, you, you say you're interested in watching classic movies and reading fiction. If you try forcibly to avoid such activities, your mind will find something else to take interest in. So we have to be practical and realistic about this. Our aim is to gradually wean our mind off its Vishayabhasanas. In other words, to weaken the Vishayabhasanas by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. The most effective means to do so is by being self-attentive. That is, we ourselves are not a Vishaya. We are Sat. We are being. So we love to attend to ourselves is what is called sat vasana. That's the inclination to hold on to our being and thereby to be as we actually are. So the whole spiritual path is, is a battle within our own will between the sat vasana on one hand and the vishaya vasanas on the other hand. The vishaya vasanas, as I say, the Vishaya Vasanas are not ego, but it is the nature of ego to have Vishaya Vasanas. So this is up to the, the Vasanas will not be entirely destroyed until ego is destroyed. So this spiritual path, it is it is a struggle till the end. We need to we need to have cultivate more and more love to hold on to our being. And to the extent to which our love to hold on to our being and thereby to be as we actually are, to the extent that that increases, the Vishaya Vasanas will decrease, they'll grow weaker. So if we try and forcibly stop um, one type of Vishaya Vasana, another type of Vishaya Vasana will tend to come in its place. So rather than, obviously there is some some Vishaya Vasanas are more harmful than others. So we need to try, first of all, to, um, to that, that is, if we know any Vishaya Vasana is particularly harmful, we should try to avoid being swayed by that Vishaya Vasana. There are many Vishaya Vasanas, but they're not particularly harmful in themselves. But all Vishaya Vasanas, and we allow ourselves to be swayed by any Vishayabhasana, it takes our attention away from ourselves. So ultimately, all Vishayabhasanas are bad. But obviously, there's a, some are more harmful than others. So we need to, <coughs> those that are less harmful, we, we, that, that those that are more harmful, we should try our best to avoid being swayed by them. Those that are less harmful, if we try to avoid being swayed by one, we'll be swayed by another. So we, the, the key to success in this path is cultivating this love to be self-attentive. To the extent to which we are self-attentive, we are thereby, when we are attending to ourselves, we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by any Vishaya Vasana. In other words, we're not allowing our attention to go away from ourselves. So to the extent to which we are self-attentive, we are thereby uh, uh, nourishing and strengthening the Sat Vasana and weakening the Vishaya Vasanas. So the key is being self-attentive. 
we cannot battle with all our Vishayabhas, and it will be an impossible task. All we need to do, this is why Bhagavan, Bhagavan was very positive, in, and he gave us very practical advice. He advised us to cling to self-attentiveness as much as possible, and he said, to the extent to which we cling to self-attentiveness, to that extent the Vishayabhasanas will decrease in strength. So the key is clinging to self-attentiveness. Um, yes, <clears throat> regarding you, you um, Dean, you uh, you say, um, uh, but uh, would the best course for followers of Bhagavan to be to continue such ac activities such as these as usual, but to try to maintain awareness of ourself, the watcher or reader, when doing these activities? Yes, whatever we are doing, that is no activity in itself takes our attention away from ourselves. It's because of our, we, it's we who allow our attention to be, to go away from ourselves. So the more we try to hold on to self-attentiveness, the less our attention will be going away from ourselves. So that is the key. Whatever the mind, speech, or body may be doing, or if they're doing nothing, whether they're doing or not doing, we are, our aim should be to try to hold on to self-attentiveness as much as possible. So, um, yes, to a certain extent, we can allow the, the less harmful um, activities to go on. But even in, in the midst of those activities, we should be trying to cultivate more and more love to attend to ourselves. The more love we have to attend to ourselves, the more our interest in these other activities will wane it'll be it'll decrease um so we <clears throat> we this is why there's a verse in bhagavad-gita um the, the verse is uh, chapter 6 verse 25 the, the verse in sanskrit is sanai sanai uparamed buddhya driti kritaya atma samstam mana kritva na kinchitapi chintayet this verse is a very, very practical instruction. What it means is, sane sane means little by little, step by step, gradually, gradually. That is the key. Gradually, gradually. Uparamet means to, uparamet means to um, cease activity, ref, uh, ref, uh, restrain the mind from going outwards is what it implies. And the means is, buddhya driti driti that means by a by an intellect that is um that is um by a firm intellect but that by keen discrimination we need to we we need to gradually gradually withdraw the mind from activity how do we withdraw the mind from activity that is what is given in the next line atma samstam mana kritva this is the key atma samstam mana kritva means uh make the mind or making the mind um, fixed in oneself in Atma. Atma means oneself. So keep making the mind fixed in oneself, do not think of anything else, um, anything else at all. This verse Bhagavan has translated into Tamil as verse 27 of, um, of the Bhagavad Gita Saram. Um, what Bhagavan says in Tamil is, 
dirum se buddhianam. That means by a, a courage imbued intellect. Um, because it, why courage imbued intellect? Because we need to have clear judgment, clear discrimination, and we need to we need to be firm and and persistent in this. We will fail time and time again, but we shouldn't give up. We should continue trying. Uh, the, the term, how Bhagavan translates uh, sane sane, gradually, gradually, in Tamil is mella mella. Mella mella means um, gently, gently, calmly, calmly, gradually, gradually. So it, 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 that, that's a very important idea. It's only gradually we can do this. Because over countless lives, we are how these Vishayabhasanas have come into existence. We are the ones who have cultivated these inclinations to take interest in this or that or whatever. So we need to gradually, gradually wean our mind off these Vishayabhasanas. We, we need, and then Bhagavan says, Dhiram uh, Buddhianal. Uh, sorry, yes, Dhiram said Buddhianal, Chittate, the mind, Mella Mella, gradually, gradually, Nischala say, Nere say Avendam. It is, that is, we, um, it is necessary by a, a, a courage imbued intellect to gently, gently, gradually, gradually, slowly, slowly make the mind achieve motionlessness. And then Bhagavan adds in a term for the, for poetic reasons. He adds it, Maratane. Uh, Maratane um, uh, means great charioteer. That is, though in the in the story of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is Arjuna's charioteer. Arjuna is as a prince. He's a great charioteer in his own right. I mean, he, 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 to be a, a prince and to fight in battle, you need to drive, be able to drive a chariot. So in this case, Krishna was acting as, with the charioteer and Arjuna was the one who was fighting in the chariot. Krishna said I, he wouldn't join in the fight, but he would drive a chariot. But because Arjuna is in his own right a great charioteer, Krishna addresses, or in this Bhagavan's translation, he addresses um uh, Arjuna, a great charioteer, but that's obviously not such an important idea, but it's just for um, fitting the meter in Tamil. Then the, the important part is the, is the next two sentences. Chittate atma vil se tiduka. That means fix the mind on yourself. Fixing the mind on yourself means fixing the attention on ourselves. That is, if, if we talk about having our mind on something, that means we're attending to it. So fixing the mind on ourselves means being self-attentive. And this is the definition that Bhagavan gives, incidentally, in the 16th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan defines what he means by Atmavichara. He says, Sada Kalamum, Manate, Atmavil Vaitiripatakutan, Atma Vicharam That means um, the name Atma Vichara refers to always keeping the mind on oneself. So, in, what he says there is what 
Krishna is saying here, when Krishna says, Apma Samstam Manakritpa, fix the mind on yourself, is uh, that that is he, what he's describing is the practice of self-investigation taught by Bhagavan. So, uh, as I say, in Tamil, Bhagavan says, Chittate Arma Bil Satiduka, fix your attention on yourself, fix the mind on yourself. Uh, do not think of anything else at all. Are we able to remain keeping our attention fixed on ourselves without thinking of anything else at all? No, I don't think any of us are able to do that. But that is what we are aiming for. And in order to reach that uh, point where we have so much love to attend to ourselves, but we're able to fix our attention firmly on ourselves and not think of anything else at all, we need to gradually, gradually wean the mind off its interest in activities. That's why um, Bhagavan says, bring the mind to uh, nischala. Nischala means nischalana, sorry. Nischalana se, nera se vendam. Nischalana means motionlessness. In other words, a state of inactivity. We bring it to that state of inactivity by gradually, gradually turning our attention back to ourselves, trying to hold on to self-attentiveness more and more. And this is the first of a pair of verses. The next verse, I won't read the Sanskrit, I'll read just what Bhagavan says in Tamil. Um, in Tamil, well, I'll, I'll just read the meaning because uh, that, that, that is Whatever the mind, which is always wavering without any steadiness, gr um, grasps and wanders, uh, that implies whatever the mind grasps and wherever it thereby it consequently wanders, drawing the mind back from that and fixing it on yourself, make it always steady. So this is a continuation of the same idea. That is, the nature of the mind is to go outwards. It's constantly, uh, under the sway of its vasanas, the mind is constantly going outwards, taking interest in this or in that, in watching classic movies or reading fiction. Or but we, all have our, we all have things, in external things, that we take interest in. That is the nature of the mind. So, we we need to gradually, gradually wean our mind off. So however many times our mind wanders, we try to bring it back to ourselves. It will again wander outwards, and we again try to bring it back to ourselves. So this is the practice. So just stopping activities is not a solution to the problem. We're not going to we're not going to be able to give up our interest in whatever it is that interests us, merely by trying to forcibly um, uh, avoid such activities. We need to be realistic. We need to know, understand the nature of the mind. But if we, if we avoid being swayed by one Vishaya Vasana, the inclination will be swayed, be swayed by some other Vasana. So but in order to overcome all Vishaya Vasanas, rather than just replacing one set of Vishayavasanas with another set, in order to overcome all Vishayavasanas collectively, the practice that Bhagavan has prescribed is this simple practice of 
turning our attention back towards ourselves, trying to hold on to that self-attentiveness. And whenever the mind wanders away, to try to bring it back. We can do this in the midst of activities. So if we are doing this, we will gradually find that our interest in other things, in reading, in watching the news or watching classic films or reading fiction or whatever, or watching sports or all these things, these will become... They, these interests won't uh, cease immediately, won't uh, die immediately. They'll still be there. So long as there's eager, but the vasanas will be there to some extent, but they will lose their strength. They'll become, they'll become less and less powerful. We'll, we'll, though we may continue the same activities we were doing previously, those activities hold less of a sway over us, and we are more and more able to turn our attention within. So this is the, this question you've asked, Dean. You cited a particular example of, uh, in your case, you're a, um, a, a, a keen watcher of classic movies and reader of fiction. Other people may not be interested in these things, but we all have certain things that we're interested in. Um, so we, 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 we are not to try and forcibly avoid these things. What we try to do is to cultivate more and more love to attend to ourselves by whatever we may be doing, trying to turn our attention back to ourselves. Because whatever we're doing, if we, if whether we're watching movies or reading fiction or following the news or taking interest in maybe environmental issues and the environment or whatever, but so many things that can, but may interest our mind. What, wherever our mind is going, we should be gradually trying to bring it back to ourselves. Because whatever we may be attending to, we exist there to attend to it. So rather than allowing our attention to go outwards towards other things, we try to bring it back towards ourselves. This is why Bhagavan gave this very useful clue. He said, in Nana, in the sixth paragraph, he says, however many thoughts arise, so what? As and when thoughts rise, we should, we should vigilantly try to investigate to whom are these thoughts. What does he mean by investigate to whom are these thoughts? Obviously, all thoughts appear to whom? To, to me, to I, to ego. So, we investigating to whom thoughts arise means turning our attention away from whatever is appearing back towards ourself. And when we turn our attention back towards ourself, um, we then have to try to hold on to that self-attentiveness. That's why he says in Nana, we, we, whatever thoughts may arise, we need to investigate to whom do they appear? To me, who am I? Investigating to whom they appear means turning our attention back to ourselves. Investigating who am I means holding on to that self-attentiveness. Because when we turn our attention towards ourselves, the natural flow of the mind is again to flow outwards. So we try to hold on to that self-attentiveness as much as possible. But it will slip outwards. Inevitably, the attention will slip outwards sooner or later. And then we again try to bring it back. So this is why that verse says, with a, a courage-imbued intellect, we need to have 
patience and perseverance. And we, we shouldn't be disheartened. We will fail any number of times. We, nobody succeeds in the spiritual path without failing, failing time and time and time again. But failure is good in the sense that if we never tried, we would never fail. So the fact that we are failing to attend to ourselves is a sign that we are at least trying to attend to ourselves. If we weren't trying to attend to ourselves, we wouldn't feel that we're failing. So the key is trying. We may, it doesn't matter how many times we fail, we need to continue trying as much as possible to be self-attentive. By this effort to be self-attentive, we are gradually, gradually weaning the mind off its Vishaya Vasana. The Vishaya Vasanas are losing their strength, and the Satvasana is gaining in strength. And that Satvasana is Bhagavan's grace working in our heart, because the, na the very nature of ego is to go outwards under the sway of its Vishaya Vasanas. So the, the inclination to turn within and thereby to surrender ourselves, that inclination is what's called Satvasana, that cannot come from ego. That can come only from our real nature, in other words, from Bhagavan, from Bhagavan's grace. So Bhagavan's grace works through us by kindling in our heart Vishaya Vasana, Sorry, satvasana, satvasana. And so we need to take advantage of that satvasana. We need to yield ourselves to his grace by trying under the sway of that satvasana to turn our attention within more and more and more. This is the practical way of going about it. If you just decide, okay, I'm going to stop watching all classic movies. I'm going to stop reading fiction. What will happen? Will your mind immediately go within? No, it won't. It'll start taking interest in some other things. So um, trying to forcibly give up um, or trying to fight with Vishaya Vasana by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them at all is not the practical way. The practical way is to, uh, is to more and more allow ourselves to be swayed by the satvasana. To the extent that we are swayed by satvasana, our attention is turning within. To the extent that the attention is turning within, we are not being swayed by the vishayavasana. So slowly, slowly, we, they lose their strength and the satvasana gains its strength. Is that a sufficiently clear answer, Dean? Yes, that sounds great. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you clearly. Yeah, that sounds yeah. great. That sounds perfect. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, one thing that occurred to me, just, just as a, uh, is that it, it, right now, it doesn't seem like it would be that challenging or difficult to diminish, you know, to, to reduce how much I watch movies and, and read. I mean, it's not as if it's a, that compelling. So yeah. it, it would be a question of, of, of moderating or just doing it less. Yeah. yeah. That, sound very what like it would be that challenging or difficult for me yeah yeah because we we have we have moderation is a very very uh a very useful thing that is by, by we we can't completely give up our interest but we can moderate the um, the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by those interests and by mm -hmm. cultivating more and more interest to know who am i right right that, that's perfect. That's perfect. Okay, right. So what we're going to do is go next to Harshita. And you know, of all three of these today's, McNair's is the third question. There's a kernel of similarity 
And it's good because it's taking us into a deep dive as to yeah. what all of this is about. Michael Harshita's question to you is, if I understand it correctly, the basic essence of Ramana's teachings is to inquire self, to do self-inquiry, and to just be without attending to any other thought, to the best of our capability, as you point out. As a beginner, I'm finding it hard to wrap my head around this because, because in order to perform one's duties at work, one's duties at home, wherever I might be, one has to think and thoughts arise. How can you not have thoughts while performing your duties at work? You need to think in order to work. Right. Um, yes, you, you, you are correct in saying that the basic essence of Bhagavan's teachings is self-investigation, to investigate who am I, what we actually are. That is the essence of his teaching. That's what his teachings are all about. Obviously, if, our, if we're dwelling on thoughts, our attention is going away from ourselves towards the thoughts. So to the extent to which we're investigating ourselves, investigating ourselves means we investigate ourselves by attending to ourselves. So to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, our attention is thereby withdrawn from thoughts. Um, but we are not, thoughts are not a problem. The problem is the interest we take in the thoughts. It's, 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 the, the problem is the Bishaya Vasana, that is the inclination to think about this or about that. Um, the, those inclinations mean the Vasanas are volitional inclinations. We, we, we are inclined to attend to things because we're interested, because we, we think that by taking interest in these things, we'll be, these things will give us some pleasure or some happiness. So it's under the sway of these Vishaya Vasanas, but our attention is constantly going outwards. Um, in the early stages, we need to try to be self-attentive as much as possible. Obviously, to, it, it's, it seems at first, but it is necessary if, we, if we've got some, uh, some work we have to do, whether at home or in the office or whatever it is. Um, it, it seems to us that it's necessary for us to attend to these things. But if we, if we consider the matter carefully, how much attention do the routine activities of our life um, require? Consider, for example, um, many people nowadays drive cars. If, you're, if you drive a car, while driving the car, is all your, are you putting 100% attention on all the things you're doing? Probably if you tried to put 100% attention, you wouldn't drive the car so effectively. Most of the time when you're driving car, you may be talking with someone, or you may be thinking about other things, or you may be listening to music, or you may be listening to podcasts, or so many things. Because to do such activities, such activities more or less go on on autopilot. Supposing every day you drive to work, you may have several miles or kilometers to drive to work, and on the way there may be um, red lights and there may be so many things. When, when you see a red light, you automatically stop. But when you reach your workplace, if you try to remember 
Oh, what's the, at such and such a stop, was the light red or was it green? You probably won't be able to remember because you were doing it more or less on autopilot. So a lot of the activities we do, we do more or less on autopilot. That is why if we observe, most of the time, whatever activity we are doing, our mind is wandering, is wandering around other thoughts. So probably we can say at least 90 or probably nearer 99% of the thoughts we think in a day are not actually necessary for the task at hand. We are thinking other thoughts while doing whatever the task may be. So if we could reduce or if we could replace all those unnecessary thoughts with self-attentiveness, our work would go on perfectly and um, uh, uh, as it's going on now, in spite of our thinking so many other thoughts, but instead of thinking unnecessary thoughts, we would be attending to ourselves. So a lot of our, most of our attention would be going towards ourselves. That is one thing to consider. To illustrate what I mean, um, one illustration I often give, supposing a, a very dear friend of yours is critically ill in hospital, Maybe they've caught COVID, or maybe they've been involved in an accident or something, and they're in ICU, and the, the doctors are not able to say whether they're going to survive or not. Would you not often be thinking about your friend during the course of the day? Even while you're at work, doing whatever work you do, the thought of your friend will often be coming to your mind. Why is that? Because you love that friend. You have so much care and concern for that friend so you'll be you'll be hoping in your heart that this friend will recover you'll be remembering all the good times you had together somehow that thought of a friend will be coming to your mind again and again and again it won't be that won't be obstructing your work your work will continue you'll be able to do your work but just a lot of your attention will be on your thought of your friend um if we why are we thinking about that friend so much? Because of our love for them. If we had so much love to know who am I, we would be attending to ourselves. If we had so much love to attend to our to ourselves, as we have to uh, think about our friend who is critically ill, we would most of the time our attention would be on ourselves. But other work would go on unobstructed. Another factor can, to consider here. It seems to us at this stage that our work can go on only if we attend to it. And therefore, if we don't attend to it, the work won't go on. That is not actually the case, because as Bhagavan made clear, the, there are three instruments of action, mind, speech, and body. When we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vishaya vasana, our attention goes away from ourselves towards some other thing. That is the beginning of mental activity. Mental activity in turn leads to activity of speech and activity of body. So a lot of the actions we do by mind, speech and body, we do under the sway of our vishaya vasanas. But our vishaya vasanas are not the only force that are driving these three instruments of action. Because, as Bhagavan made clear, 
whatever actions we do under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas, those actions are called Agamya. Agamya are the actions, the karmas, the bare fruit. The fruit of Agamya, once we've done an action, the fruit is out of our hands, it's in God's hand. So the fruit of the actions we do in this lifetime, we cannot experience those fruit in this lifetime. We Those fruit all get stored in a in, a, in what is called sanchitta. Sanchitta means a heap or pile. That is the, 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 all the roots of past karmas that we haven't yet experienced. So the, the sanchitta is a huge pile because in every life, as a general rule, we are trying to do, we're trying to experience so many things, far more than we're able to experience. So for if in if in one life if we, if in one lifetime we experience we we experience one lifetime worth of the fruit of past karmas, we may accumulate ten lifetimes of uh, of more fruit to be stored. So the sanchitta tends to be an ever growing pile. From that huge pile of fruits of past karmas, which we've done in numerous countless previous lives. God or Guru, in other words, Bhagavan, selects which fruit of which karmas will be most conducive to our spiritual development in this lifetime. The fruit he allots for us to experience in this lifetime is called prarabdha. Prarabdha means the fate or destiny. So, as Bhagavan said, whatever is destined to happen, is going to happen. Whatever is not destined to happen is not going to happen. So what that means, whatever we are to experience in this life, it's, it's already predetermined. We cannot avoid experiencing what we're destined to experience, and we can't experience what we are not destined to experience. So the prarabdha uh, determines what we are to experience. However, in order to experience the prarabdha, certain actions are necessary on our part. If it's our destiny, for example, if it's our destiny to become a doctor, for example, in order to become a doctor, we have to study hard, we have to pass exams, and even when we qualify as a doctor, we still need to keep up with all the latest um, um, medical um, knowledge, I mean, all the latest uh, discoveries, new drugs and everything. So certain act in order to be a doctor, certain actions are necessary in order to become a doctor and in order to continue performing as, a, as an effective doctor, certain actions are necessary. Whatever actions are necessary in order for us to experience our prarabdha, those actions of mind, speech and body those instruments of action will be made to do by God. Bhagavan makes this very clear in the note that he wrote for his mother. And that is in, uh, after Bhagavan left Madurai, he left the note saying, um, no one need go, I, I've gone in, oh, oh, oh this has gone, I, I have gone in search of my father. No uh, trouble need be taken to search for this. He, he began to refer to himself as this. Um, and then he said something about the three rupees that he had uh, borrowed uh, for his uh, school fee to, to pay some fees. But actually, he he um, 
he used that money to buy the railway ticket. So for for some time, his family in Madurai had no idea what had happened to him. All they knew is he had suddenly disappeared from their life. He was a young 16-year-old boy, schoolboy. His mother had been widowed some years earlier when he was when Bhagavan was 12. So about four years earlier, his mother had been widowed. So the family were very poor because um, there was no um, the, the, her children were young and there was no uh, breadwinner. But at about the time Bhagavan left, his elder brother began to work to help support the family. So his because his elder brother, oh, oh no, it may not have been at the time Bhagavan left, it may have been later. But anyway, what happened was in the, um, about a year or so after Bhagavan had left, they received news that he was, that is, someone from Madurai who had visited Tiruvannamalai recognized him. Because by that time, it, it was, Bhagavan was becoming well known in Tiruvannamalai because though he was keeping silent, People can't help noticing a young boy of sixteen who's just um, who's who's not talking, who's always seems to be absorbed in meditation. So um, he 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 had already attracted a certain amount of attention. So one of his relatives or someone known to his family who had visited Tiruvannamalai came to hear about this Brahmana Swami and went to see him, and he saw, oh, this is Venkatraman. From from Madurai, so he when he returned home to Madurai, he informed um, Bhagavan's mother, uh, "Your Venkataraman is there in Tiruvannamalai. He is uh, he's living a very austere life of of meditation. He doesn't seem to be talking to anyone. He's totally absorbed in meditation. So his mother naturally wanted to come and see him, but because they were very poor, they couldn't afford to. But in the meanwhile, her eldest son got a job, and he saved up money to bring his mother to Tiruvannamalai. So Bhagavan had left home in um, in uh, the end of August, um, or in eighteen ninety six. In eighteen in December eighteen ninety eight, two years more than two years after he had left home, his mother was finally able to come to see him, and as a mother. Seeing his condition, but he's he's sitting there wearing just a a copine, uh, that is a loincloth, and he uh, seems to be completely unmindful of the comforts of the body. He's absorbed all the time. Seems to be absorbed in meditation, or that's how it looked to onlookers. Of course, he he wasn't absorbed in meditation. He was just being as he. I mean, it. He was beyond meditation and everything because he had already attained all that was to be attained, but he was just absorbed in himself, we can say. So, um, seeing that, she pleaded with him to please come home with her. She said, we don't want you to change your lifestyle. You can continue your meditation or whatever it is you're doing, but I'm your mother. At least allow me to take care of you, to to feed you, and to provide for the need, for all your needs. Bhagavan in those days spoke very little, so he just kept quiet. This all this happened on in a place in Tiruvannamalai called Pavlakundru. That is an eastern spur of uh, of Arunachala. On top of that uh, that eastern spur, there's a temple. 
uh, called Pablacun. Well, Pablacundra is the name of the hill. Right? So it's like a small hillock, and on top there's this temple, and that overlooks the big temple in, in the center of the town. Um, so Bhagavan was at that time staying in that temple. So he was there, but this all this happened. So Bhagavan was just sitting there, keeping quiet as usual, and his mother was pleading with him and weeping and everything, as a mother naturally would. For the, on, for the other people who were there, it was very unbearable to see this uh, lady weeping, I mean, this mother weeping and uh, begging her son to come back with him, and he's just sitting there as if completely indifferent, as if completely unmoved. So finally, one of the people who was present gave Bhagavan a pencil and paper and said, Swami, if you don't want to reply in words, please at least give a reply to your mother in writing. Then Bhagavan wrote this note. And this is actually the first recorded teaching that we have of Bhagavan. And it is a very, very important teaching. What he said in that note is, Abharava prarabdha prakaram adakarnavan angangirindu artvipan. What that means is, Abharabha prarabdha prakaram means according to or in accordance with the destiny of each one, Adakarnavan, he who is for that, he who is for that means God or Guru, who is the one who is to attain the fruits of the karma, he who is for that, Angangirindu, being there, there, that means being in each place, that implies being in the heart of each person, each jiva, uh, Artavipan. Artavipan literally means will cause to dance. In other words, it will make them act. So what he implies by that is whatever actions we need to do in order to experience our prarabdha, those actions will be made to do by God who is there in our heart. Um, many people who don't think deeply about this superficially uh, interpret this to mean, but Bhagavan is saying all the actions, all our actions, are actions we're made to do by God. That is not the case. If all our actions were actions we were made to do by God, there would be no karma, I mean, the law of karma would be meaningless. Why should we experience the fruits of karmas that we've done not under our own will, but are made to do by God? If God is the one who makes us do the action, God should be experienced for fruit. We shouldn't experience the fruit. So that is a very superficial and incorrect understanding. All Bhagavan means there is those actions that are necessary for us to do in order for our prarabdha to unfold, those actions will be made to do. Then in the next sentence, he says, Endrum naduvadadu, enviachikanum naduvadadu. That means what is not to happen, sorry, what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. That is, what that implies is, when he says in spite of any amount of effort, that means we are, if something is, if something is not to happen, that doesn't prevent us wanting it to happen. It doesn't prevent us trying to make it happen. I, for example, I may want to be very, very rich, but if it's my destiny to be poor, my destiny to be poor doesn't prevent me wanting to be rich. It doesn't prevent me trying to be rich, but it will prevent me being rich. So I'm free to, to 
to want to be rich as much as I want. I mean, I, I can, I, we have freedom of will. We can want to be rich. We, can, we have freedom of action. We can try to be rich. We can try to find some way by hook or by crook. We try to find some way of becoming rich. Because it's our destiny to be poor, we'll be poor in spite of whatever efforts we make. Um, so, but I, by saying that, Bhagavan makes it clear we are free to want what is not destined to happen, but we wouldn't make effort for it um, if, if we didn't want it. So, by, by implication, we can say Bhagavan is, is implying there, but we, we have freedom of will. We, we can, we can, the destiny determines what we are to experience. Our will determines what we want to experience. But destiny cannot obstruct our will, and our will cannot obstruct our destiny. That is, I, just because I'm destined to be poor doesn't stop me wanting to be rich. And just because I want to be rich doesn't prevent me being poor, but if that's what is destined. This is why Bhagavan says in verse 19 of, of Uludunapadu, um, the, the, um, the argument or the dispute about which prevails, fate or will, is only for those who do not know, who do not, who do not discriminate, who do not distinguish the root of both fate and will. The root of both fate and will is ego. That is, it is ego who wants to experience this or that. It's ego who tries to experience this or that. And it is ego that is, has to experience the fruit of that. As he says in verse 38 of Uludnaptu, if we are a doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. The doer of actions is ego, but ego identifies. The actions actually are done by mind, speech, and body. But ego identifies itself with these things and says, I am thinking, I want this, I, I like that. I am thinking, I am speaking, I am doing, I am, I'm I am uh, walking or working or whatever. So the we are the doer of action because we identify with these instruments of action. And consequently, we have to experience the resulting fruit. So, um, the, uh, both, that is, um, fate and will work side by side. Neither obstructs the other because they're two independent domains. Will decides what we want to experience and what we try to experience. Fate decides what we are actually to experience. But fate cannot prevent us wanting or trying to experience something. The, our wanting and trying to experience it cannot prevent the fate, which is whether we're to experience it or not. So, as I say, Bhagavan makes it clear. Uh, what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort, so we can make as much effort as we want, we, we cannot experience anything that we are not destined to experience. And then in the third sentence, he says, What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstacle. So if it's our destiny to, um, to experience something, we can want as much as we want to avoid that, we can try as much as we want. For example, um, of late, I, my body has not been in a healthy condition for the last uh, one and a half months or so. 
did I want this? No, I didn't want it. Um, and do I try to find solutions? Yes, we go to doctor and all these things. But we, we are free to want to be free of illness. We are free to try to be free of illness. But if we're destined to be ill, we will be ill. And no amount of uh, efforts on our part or no amount of medicines or anything is going to make us better until our destiny is to become better. So we, we have absolutely no freedom to change what is destined to what we are destined to experience. Or, or to avoid, that is to avoid what we're destined to experience or to experience what we are not destined to experience. We have absolutely no freedom. We do have freedom to want to experience what we're not destined to experience or want to avoid what we are destined to experience. We also have freedom to try to, to experience what we want to experience or to avoid what we don't want to experience. We have no freedom to change what is we actually to experience. That is determined by prarabdha. And then uh, that's verse third sentence. Then the fourth sentence, he says, tinnam. this indeed is certain. It's absolutely certain. That is, whatever, whatever is not to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort we make. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any, however much we try to obstruct it. This is certain. Ahalin monomai irike nandru. So he concludes by saying, therefore, being silent is good. That's all. He doesn't even, it's usually translated as being silent is best. He doesn't even say best. He said being silent is good. What does he mean by being silent? Does it mean that we should remain without doing any action? No, obviously not. Because whatever actions we need to do in order for our prarabdha to unfold, we'll be made to do those actions. So being silent means not rising as ego, subsiding back into the into our source by holding on to our being and thereby surrendering ourselves without rising as ego, then the destiny will be going on. We won't be trying to obstruct it or to change it in any way. So that's a very, very important teaching of Bhagavan. So how is that relevant to this question of uh, Harshita? Harshita says, um, how can you not have thought while performing your duties at work? You need to think to work. Yes, in order to work, you need to think. But you don't actually need to work or to think because all these things are happening according to destiny. If you hold on to self-attentiveness, ego will thereby subside, but destiny will go on as it is ordained. So all the actions that... You, but you need to do in order for your destiny to unfold, you will be made to do. So, for example, you may have um, you may have family, you may have elderly parents, you may have husband or wife, children, and so many dependents. You and in order to support them, you're the main, you may be the main breadwinner. So you have to go to work. And at work, you've got certain responsibilities. You, you're answerable to your boss. You, you're being paid a salary, so you have to do a certain amount of, of work to justify that salary. All these things 
are all according to destiny. So if it's your destiny to support your family by working, you your body, speech, and mind will be made by God to do whatever is necessary in order to earn, in order to support your family. You don't actually need to do it to do it at all because it's being it is God who is driving the actions of your mind, speech, and body. If you cling to self-attentiveness, everything will happen of its own accord. Bhagavan makes this very clear in um, in the thirteenth paragraph of Nana. Sorry, this is a rather long answer, but it's very, very important because this is such a, a, a crucial part of Bhagavan's teachings. What he says in the 13th paragraph, this is closely related to the note that he wrote for his mother. He's not saying exactly the same thing, but these two, two things are that what he says in the 13th paragraph of Nana and what he says in the note to his mother, they're complementary. If we read them side by side, we get a clear, a very clear picture of what he's teaching us. So in the first sentence of, of the 13th paragraph, he defines what is self-surrender. What is what does it mean to give ourselves to God, to surrender ourselves to God? What he says is, Anma chintane tavira, vera chintane kalambavatku, satram idum kodamal, apmanishta paranai irapade, tannai isanaku alipadam. The main clause is, apmanishta paranai irapade, tannai isanaku alipadam. Apmanishtanai irapade means being as Atmanishta Param. Atmanishta Param means one who is firmly established as oneself. In other words, being as we actually are. So being as we actually are is giving ourselves to God. That's a main clause. How to be as we actually are, he, he, uh, he indicates in the first clause, which is an adverbial clause. Anma chintane tavira vera chintane kalambhavdaku satram idam kadamal. That means not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than Atmachintana. Atmachintana means, literally means thought of oneself. It, it implies self-attentiveness. So we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we thereby no, give no room to the rising of any other thought. This is what uh, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, in that verse we talked about earlier. Atmasamsta manakritva na kinchitapi chintayat. Fix your mind in yourself, do not think of anything else. That is, to the extent to which our attention is fixed on ourselves, it's thereby not going outwards and we're thereby not giving room to the rising of any other thought. But we should, the, the non rising of other thought is not our aim. That is a byproduct. Because as I said in, in the earlier paragraph, the sixth paragraph, Bhagavan said, What's it matter however many thoughts arise? So our aim is not to try to stop thoughts. Our aim is to be keenly self-attentive. If we are keenly self-attentive, there will thereby be no room for other thoughts to arise. Um, so the implication of this first sentence is that in order to surrender ourselves to God, we need to be so keenly self-attentive, but we give no room to the rising of any other thoughts. When we read this, we may well ask, as uh, as um, as Hashita asked here, um, uh, uh, <coughs> how can you not have thoughts while performing your duties at work? This is a natural thing for us to ask. 
Bhagavan answers this by implication in the next sentence. What he says in the next sentence is, Isam peril evlo barate patalam avalaveum avavahitu kolkira. What that means is, however much burden we place on God, he will bear all of it. So what does this imply in the context? In the previous sentence, he says, we need to, in order to give ourselves wholly to God, in order to surrender ourselves to God, we need to be so keenly self-attentive that we give no room to the rising of any other thoughts. So the implication of this sentence is, even the burden of thinking what, whatever needs to be thought, we can leave even the burden of thinking to God. If God wants us to think something, let him make us think it. It's no concern of ours. Our only concern is to hold on to self-attentiveness. So even the burden of thinking, we should surrender to him. If we surrender the burden of thinking, he will bear that burden for us. So we don't actually have to think anything. And then in the next sentence, he says, Sakala Karyangalayum Oru Parameshwara Shakti Naditi Kondirka Padial. What that means is, since one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas. So, what does that mean? Parameshwara Shakti, uh, Parama means supreme, Ishwara, Ishwara means God, but Ishwara means the ruler. That is, God is the ruling power. So, Parameshwara Shakti can either mean the, the, the supreme power of God, or it can mean the supreme ruling power. It amounts to the same, because God is the supreme ruling power. So, when He, God, is driving all Karyas, what does Karyas mean in this context? In this context, Karyas means whatever needs or ought to be done, or whatever needs or ought to happen. That is, whatever is to happen, as Bhagavan made clear in the note to his mother, is going to happen according to destiny. Nothing that is, nothing that is, not, uh, nothing that is uh, destined never to happen will happen. Nothing that is destined to happen will stop. It's all going to happen according to Prarabdha. We cannot experience anything that is not destined to happen. We cannot avoid experiencing what is destined to happen. So all the things that need or ought to happen, and all the things that we need or ought to do in order to make those things happen, God is driving all those things. That's what he implied in the first sentence of that note to his mother. But um, according to the destiny of each one, he who is for that, that means the Parameshwara Shakti, God, is, is will being in the being there, there, being in each place, being in the heart of each one of them, will make them act. So he will make us, our mind, speech, and body do whatever actions they need to do. So we can leave it up to him. So he says, since one Parameshwara Shakti is driving all Karyas, um, uh, then he says, Namum Adaku Adangi Ramal. Instead of we also yielding, uh, instead of we also yielding to it, that is when he's driving all everything, everything that's meant to happen, he's going to make it happen. Why should we not yield ourselves to it? Instead of yielding ourselves to it, uh, uh, Andrew Sada Chintipadain. 
why should we be constantly thinking it's necessary to do like this, it's necessary to do like that? In other words, if we hold on to self-attentiveness, we thereby surrender ourselves wholly to Him. So we are handing over responsibility for our mind, speech and body to Him. Let Him do with these things whatever He wants. We leave it to Him. So we don't have to be thinking, oh, do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Or oh, I must do this, I must do that. Our aim is, the only thing that we need to do is to hold on to self-attentiveness and thereby surrender ourselves wholly to Him. He will take care of everything else. And to illustrate this, he then gives a very nice example. Though we know that the train is going bearing all the burden, why should we who go traveling in it, instead of remaining happily leaving our small luggage placed on it, suffer bearing it, our luggage, on our head? That is, if you're traveling by train somewhere, the train is going to carry you to your destination. It's also going to carry your luggage. It's carrying so many burdens. So if you're, tra if you're, a, wise per if you're a wise traveler, when you get on a train, you put your luggage on the luggage rack or on the under the seat or on the seat beside you or somewhere. You, you, you put your luggage anywhere but carrying it on your own head. If you're a foolish traveler, you think, oh, I might have to keep my luggage safe, so I must carry it on my head. You suffer unnecessarily. So he's, the wording there is very nice. He says, um, uh, um, instead of being happily being, placing the luggage on the train, why should we suffer carrying it on our head? This is the best reason for surrender. If we don't surrender ourselves, we are carrying the burden on our head. I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to avoid doing this. Oh, we're thinking, we, we are taking, the, we're carrying the whole burden of the world on our head as if everything depended on us. If I don't do my work, then what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to a job? We, we take all this burden on our head and thereby we suffer. To the extent that we surrender, we are taking the burden off our head and putting it on the luggage rack. We're, we're placing our burden upon God. He will bear all of it. However much we bear, burden we place on him, he will bear all of it. So the truth is, as implied by Bhagavan in this paragraph and in what the note he wrote for his mother, the truth is, it's not necessary for us to do anything. It's not necessary for us to think. It's not necessary for us to work. Because whatever actions of mind, speech, and body need to be done in order for what is to happen to happen, God is making them do that. So we can, by holding on to self-attentiveness, or to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby surrendering ourselves to Him. And to the extent to which we surrender ourselves to Him, He will bear all the burden. So the truth is, it, it may not seem clear to us now, but the truth is, we do not need to think of anything. All we need to do is to hold firmly to self-attentiveness. Of course, most of us are incapable of doing that now. Even to hold on to self-attentiveness for a few seconds here and there is a struggle for us. But this is what we are moving towards. Why we are clinging to self-attentiveness? Because by clinging to self-attentiveness, we are thereby surrendering the burden to Him.
We are there by taking the luggage from our head and placing it on the luggage rack. So every moment of self-attentiveness self is a moment of self-surrender. And to the extent to which we surrender ourselves, he bears all the burdens. He bears the burden anyway. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen whether we surrender ourselves or not. But your luggage is going to reach its destination whether you carry it on your head or put it on the luggage rack. Likewise, he, what is to happen is going to happen whether we, whether we obstruct it or, or try to um, avoid it. It's going to happen anyway. Nothing's going to happen that's not destined to happen. But we are unnecessarily causing ourselves to suffer. The wise course is to surrender. And we surrender by clinging to self-attentiveness. Is that a, a clear and useful answer, Harshita? Yes, it is. Uh, thank you so much for such an elaborate uh, explanation. Yes. My father well, always said you're a noble soul, a rishi, so I'm very blessed. Thank you. Well, this is not, I, this is not my explanation. This is Bhagavan's explanation. But the reason I take so much time to answer these questions if if I simply give a, a a question, oh no, it doesn't matter. So long as you're attending to yourself, you don't have to worry about anything else. You're not going to understand it. Bhagavan has not only Bhagavan has told us not what we should believe. He's told us why we should believe it. He Bhagavan's teachings are very very rational. If we understand his teachings correctly, we understand not only. What we should believe, what is beneficial for us to believe, but why it is beneficial for us to believe that, and why believing that is useful for us, how it's going to help us in our spiritual progress. So, thinking deeply about what Bhagavan has said, and I don't mean all these things that are recorded in talks and these other things, these are not very accurate recordings. And Bhagavan was often not giving his pure teachings because he, it was according to the needs of the individual questioners. But in Bhagavan's original writings, like this note he wrote for his mother, Nana, Uludunaptu, Upadeshundia, Aranachastuti Panchkam, if we dwell deeply upon what Bhagavan says in his own original writings, we will get a clear and comprehensive understanding of his teachings. And then when questions arise in our mind, we will be, how, how am I able to answer your questions? Just because by Bhagavan's grace, I've been dwelling on his teachings and also trying a little bit to put them into practice for so many years. But when you ask questions, I can clearly see, but yes, Bhagavan has already answered this, if not directly, at least by implication. So I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan has said and what is the implication and how that answers your question. Yes. So it is not me at all. It is Bhagavan who is doing this. Thank you again. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Harshita. Uh, Michael, before we go on, I'll just point out that the three people who submitted excellent questions today with some overlapping, uh, they're all new. I believe they're new to Ramana. They're certainly new to our satsang on Sundays here. But uh, I really appreciate their questions. And I think everybody appreciates the depth to which you bring up many examples of yeah. what the correct answer is. This last one's from McNair. And I'm going to tell you that uh, McNair Ezard uh, sent in two questions and we'll keep the other one for uh, another meeting when we get together because our time is moving quickly. This is a long question, so be patient and I'll read it to you. The question concerns the process of self-inquiry in relationship to emotions <laughs> that come into our awareness. 
most of what I've read regarding Ramana's process of self-inquiry is in relation to thought, uh, posing the question, who am I? Who's having this thought? To whom is this thought appearing? If I pose these questions in relation to thought, usually that thought will dissipate, and then my mind is somewhat at rest. Do these questions of self-inquiry also work with an emotion that may arise? That is, asking the questions, who is experiencing this emotion? To whom is this emotion appearing? Who is having this experience? And he concludes by saying, emotion seems to arise so quickly that it is sometimes difficult to know exactly what thought precipitated the emotion itself. So I'm left with the emotion to deal with. I know you understand the question. Uh, I think it's excellent. And we all look forward to your answer, Michael. Uh, yes, this is, this is a good question. That is, there are a few things that need to be cleared up first. Self-investigation is not about posing questions. Bhagavan didn't say that we should question who am I, or we should question to whom is this thought appearing. He said we need to investigate who am I, investigate to whom are these thoughts appearing. Supposing Bhagavan gives you a, a book and tells you, investigate what is written in the book. What is written in the book sounds like a question. But he's not asking you to sit there and, and hold the book in your hand and say, what is written in this book? What is written in this book? No. Investigating what is written in the book means we have to open the book and read what is written there. Likewise, when he says investigate who am I, it doesn't mean asking the question who am I. It means investigating who am I, means turning our attention back towards ourselves. So, Bhagavan never said to ask questions. He said we need to investigate. And investigating to whom does this thought appear, what does that mean? To whom does any thought appear? It appears to us. So investigating to whom it appears means investigating ourselves, the one to whom the thought appears. That's the first point that needs uh, clarification. The second point that needs clarification is we need to understand what Bhagavan means by thought. Generally, when we when we talk about thoughts, we are in most cases we are talking about the mental chatter that is going on in our mind. We mental chatter. I mean, it's the nature of the mind to be chattering to itself. But Bhagavan uses the term thought, or Tamil terms are equivalent to thought, in a much broader sense. Any mental impression, any mental phenomena is a thought. So according to Bhagavan, all phenomena are thoughts. In Nana, in the fourth paragraph, he says, Ninevu uh, Gale Tabitu, excluding thoughts, Jagam Indru or Porul Anyamai Ile. Excluding thoughts, there is no other separate thing as world. And he says again in the 14th paragraph, he says, um, uh, towards the end, he says, Jagam Embadu Nineveh. That means what is called the world is only thought. Why does he say that? Because what we experience as the world is just mental impressions. That is, we, we, what do we experience? We experience sights, sounds, um, uh, tastes 
smells and tactile sensations. As he's, as Bhagavan says in the sixth paragraph of, uh, sorry, the sixth verse of Nan, of uh, Uludu Napadu, the world is, uh, is uh, a form of the five kinds of sense impression, nothing else. That is, if you remove all sights, all sounds, all tastes, all smells, and all tactile sensations, where is any world? What we call the world is only these it's only these sensory impressions. These sensory impressions are mental impressions. It's the mind that is, that is experiencing these impressions. So, according to Bhagavan, the whole world is nothing but thoughts. Just like in a dream. In a dream, we see a world. The world seems to, in dream, it seems to be very physical. If you kick a stone in a dream, it hurt, you hurt your foot. If you fall off a cliff, you're going to, uh, when you come tumbling down, you're going to hurt yourself. So the, the world in a dream seems to be very physical. But when we wake up, we recognize it was all a mental fabrication. So the, the dream is nothing but our own thoughts. Likewise, all phenomena, whether seemingly physical or seemingly mental, all are thoughts. So emotions are, are a type of thought in this very broad definition. That is, all objects, all everything that is experienced is a thought. Our whole life is just a series of thoughts. It's all a dream. Not only is all are all the objects thoughts, the subject that is experiencing those objects is also a thought. That's why Bhagavan often referred to ego as the thought called I. That is, and he said, of all the thoughts that rise in the mind, the first thought is the thought called I. Why is that? Because though ego is a thought, it is a thought unlike other thought, all other thoughts, because all other thoughts are just objects. They have no awareness of their own. The only thought that is endowed with awareness is this first thought, I. So, all other thoughts appear only in the view of this I, namely ego, the thought called I. So this is the thought that is aware of all other thoughts. So according to Bhagavan, everything other than our own real nature, everything other than what we actually are, in other words, everything other than pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, pure love, which is our real nature, everything other than that is just a thought. So. Um, Yes, what I hope that this is sufficient for you to um, I hope this is sufficient for you now to understand the answer to your question. When Bhagavan says, um, however many thoughts appear, so what? what he, or however many thoughts arise, so what? What he means is, however many phenomena appear, so what? Whatever phenomena it may be, whether it's a sight or a sound or an, or a, of some mental chatter or an emotion or a like or a dislike or whatever it may be, all are objects, they are all thoughts. And to, so whatever may appear, to whom does it appear? It appears to me. That is, it appears to us as ego. When we don't rise as ego in sleep, nothing appears to us. Well, only when we rise as ego, all this um, multitude of diverse types of phenomena appear to us. So, uh, 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 whatever may appear, 
what we need to do is to investigate to whom it appears. To whom does it appear? It appears obviously to me. So we need to investigate who am I. We need to turn our attention back to ourselves. When Bhagavan says, investigate to whom it appears, he means we need to turn our attention from away from whatever appears back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. And when he says, investigate who am I, he means having turned our attention back to ourselves, we then need to hold on to that self-attentiveness as much as possible until again our attention goes outward, and then again we have to bring it back. So, McNair, uh, I hope this is an adequate answer to your question. Is there anything further you want to ask about that? No, I I think it's good, Michael. Thank you. It, to me, it's almost like the who am I type of question is kind of like a launching pad to self-investigation. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That, that is no harm. Sorry? Yeah, there's yeah. no harm in asking the question, who am I? But asking the question, who am I, is not self-investigation. Asking the question, who am I, should remind us to investigate ourselves. In other words, it should remind us to turn our attention back to ourselves. All right, great. And Thank you very one, much. Yeah, there's one other thing I can add to that. Sorry, I, I forgot about this. That is, emotions are thoughts, but they are, they are particularly strong thoughts. They're emotionally charged thoughts. So um, sometimes certain emotions, um, uh, sadness or um, anger or, I mean, there's so many different types of emotions. Because of their emotional charge, they seem to be very powerful. But whatever type of thought it may be, however emotionally charged the thought may be, the, the, the practice remains the same. To whom does this appear? That is, however strong an emotion may be, that emotion cannot arise except in our view. It's only in our view that the emotion arises. So we need to separate ourselves from that emotion by turning our attention back to ourselves. Then the emotion loses its strength to the extent. Often we, often we get carried away by the emotion. But if we're able to turn our attention back towards ourselves, the, the emotion thereby loses its strength and it will subside like any, any other thought. So the questioning who it appears to is really you're looking back at the ego. Yes, yes. But the one to whom all other things appear is only ego. Hmm. The other things appear in waking and dream. Nothing else appears in sleep. Because in, e in sleep, ego is absent, so everything else is absent. That's why Bhagavan said, of all the thoughts that arise in the mind, the thought called I alone is the first thought. Only after this rises do other thoughts rise. Because all other thoughts are objects. Objects exist only in the view of the subject. The subject is ego, the, the thought called I. So in the absence of ego in sleep, Nothing else is experienced. All that we're aware of in sleep is our own being, I am. We're not aware of anything else. And obviously, I am is not an object of experience. It's our own, that is our, our awareness itself is our being. So just by being as we are in sleep, we, we are aware of our own existence. We're not aware of anything else because of the absence of ego. In waking and dream, we rise as ego, everything else appears. 
McNair, when Thank you posed the question and you sent it to me to read to Michael, I saw emotion and I immediately <coughs> related to it personally, but for the wrong reason. I thought you were uh, raising the question about emotion versus a regular thought, as Michael explained, or, or another thought, uh, based on what Michael said just about five minutes ago, that sometimes emotions can be quite strong and meaning to me, they can block out my ability to process it the right way with self-inquiry. And Michael, to you, your, your answer made a difference for me. Sometimes though, and I've been doing this for quite a while now, depending on the size and strength of the emotion, mm. I can't get very far to self-inquiry. An example, uh, a grandchild of mine in Portland, 1,200 mm. miles away, in serious peril, serious health issues, serious uncertainty as to what was going to happen uh, for my children there and for my grandchildren. Uh, the emotion overpowered my ability to, to really go to uh, in whom does this emotion appear and tracing it back to its origin. So, uh, I, so I don't think, McNair, that's what you meant by it, but can you say even a little bit more, Michael, about that answer that you gave on how to process it, even in a case of something serious? That is, we, we, need, to be, we need to be realistic with ourselves. The truth is, we are all constantly failing in our effort to be self-attentive. The, the more emotionally charged the thought, the more we tend to fail. But just because we fail, that, that shouldn't discourage us because failure is inevitable in this path. We will fail time and time and time again. We'll get carried away by Vabasanas. We'll get carried away by our emotions. And um, for, for example, uh, sometimes we're, the body is in pain. When, when the body is in pain, that pain tends to grab our attention. It's often, we, we know what we should do. To whom is this pain? It's to me. So we should be turning our attention back towards ourselves. But when the pain is intense, it's often very difficult. It, it seems very difficult to do so. That, that pain seems to grab our attention. Likewise, with strong emotions and so many, uh, so many things. So we, we, we shouldn't be disheartened by our failure. But and we, we shouldn't give up trying. So however strong the emotion, we should at least try to, to remember, this appears to me, hold on to myself, because no emotion, without my existence, nothing else could be known, because all other things are known by me. So I must exist, so I should hold on to my being. If I hold on to my being, to the extent to which I hold on to my being, other things will recede into the background. But obviously, with strong emotions or severe pain or so many things, it is difficult. It is difficult for us to do so. The nature of the mind is to go outward. So, sane, sane, uparamet. Slowly, 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 we need to withdraw the mind from all this external um, activity, this external impression, and turn it back towards ourselves. There is no other way. So, the one thing we should never do in this path is ever be disheartened by our failure. The very fact that we are trying to be self-attentive is itself a clear sign of progress. When Bhagavan was asked, what, what is the sign of progress in this path? Bhagavan said, perseverance. 
perseverance alone indicates how serious we are in following this path. If we come across a little difficulty, oh, I was carried away by emotion, oh, I'm no good at this self-inquiry, I may as well give up, uh, let me do something else instead. That is not going to get us very far. We need to, however many times we persevere, we, I mean, sorry, however many times we fail, we need to persevere, we need to continue trying. And we need to be realistic. We're going to inevitably going to fail again and again. It's the very nature of the mind to be going outwards, grasping things other than itself, carried away by emotions, carried away by strong sensations and this and that. That is just the nature of the mind. The only way to overcome the mind is slowly, slowly, slowly to turn my attention back within. However many times it goes out, we bring it back to ourselves. If we do so, Success is absolutely guaranteed. Because <laughs> ultimately, it is not dependent on our effort. It's dependent on grace. But the grace isn't something that descends from heaven. Grace is something that works from within our own heart. It manifests in our heart in the form of a love to turn our attention back to ourselves and thereby to surrender ourselves. So we have to yield to grace by trying more and more to turn within and thereby to subside back into our source, thereby to surrender ourselves. That is the, what Bhagavan's path is all about. It's all about subsiding, subsiding, subsiding. And we subside by holding on to ourselves. We rise by holding on to other things. We subside by holding on to ourselves. We're going to progress with uh, other questions from other people. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. We're going to begin with Mukta, who had a question after Dean was talking. And by the way, our thanks to McNair, Dean, and Harshita. Uh, excellent questions all the way around. And uh, I'm, I can speak for everybody, I'm sure, by saying we loved your answers, Mark. Mukta, what was your follow-up question to what Dean was talking about? Thank you, Ted. And uh, thank you, Michael. It was really an enlightening session. But I got various questions in the way. <laughs> right now, I'm just going to ask one, yeah. which is uh, going inward, is it equivalent to um, being in the present? Like if I'm like opening a peapod <laughs> or something, doing some work, is it like being attentive to it? Is that also equivalent to going inward like our self-inquiry because you're just trying to focus the mind in that present moment of me just opening the pee and taking the pee out and things like that you know okay the present moment is what we call now the present time is sorry the present moment is what we call now the present place is what we call here what is it that makes the present moment present or the present place present? Always the place that we experience as here and now is the place where we are present. So what makes the present, whether in time or in space, appear to be present is because of the presence of ourself. The presence of ourself means our being. Because I am here, I am always here and now. But that is, the, the time is constantly flowing past me, but space is, the, 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 the point that I experience in space as here, that is constantly changing, depending on where the body moves. But the, the one thing that is always present is my own being, I am. So if we understand that presence means our own presence, our own being, I am, yes, 
being ever-present, being centered in the present, in other words, being centered in ourself, in our own being, I am, that is, that is what is meant by turning inwards. Turning inwards means turning our attention back towards ourself. Turning, attending to anything other than ourselves is turning outwards. Even attending to our thoughts, to our emotions, to our likes, to our dislikes, these are all external to us. The only thing that is internal is ourself. Everything else is external. So when Bhagavan talks about turning inwards, he means turning our attention back towards ourself alone. In other words, towards our own being, I am. To, to be clear, maybe, um, I had a very contrasting two days, right? On Sunday, I, uh, last Sunday, I took time and went to the beach and just watched the waves and just asked myself for a very inward, like, you know, who's yeah. watching, who's thinking, who's doing this? Yeah. Uh, I would have done for a half hour or whatever. And then on my drive back, I was completely in the present moment or my mind was happy and I was paying attention to the palm trees on the road I was paying attention to everything this you know like not like normal normally when I'm driving I'm not like paying attention like that so I was like basically practicing the scenery and the seer and trying to keep the attention on the seer but by doing that my attention on the scenery was very clear and then the next day I thought like I could retain it or do that, but then it was lost in a working day of full of activity, no break. I was tired. I couldn't, you know, like I, I couldn't bring back. I was nonstop working and I was really craving for that break to go inward, but I couldn't. And it's just mine was going nonstop on the activity and tired. I just don't know how to balance the both and keep that um peace to amidst amidst the activity and um, yeah it, it, it just i i i understand everything you say the self-inquiry everything but how to practically in the midst of a lot of stress and work and timelines and pressure how to um how to do it you know in just a more practical aspect of while doing the work how can i be inward and do the work yeah. Well, this this we can we can master this only by practice. So yes, so many times we get involved in activities that take all our attention away from ourselves. They take our attention away from ourselves. It's not the it's not the activities that are taking our attention away from ourselves. It's our vasanas, our inclination to attend to those activities that is taking our attention away from ourselves. But this is happening time and time again. All we can do is to persevere in the practice. Whenever we notice our attention has gone away from ourselves, we try to bring it back to ourselves. That is the practice. But one thing that needs clarifying, to the extent to which our attention is on ourselves, the seer, it is thereby withdrawn from the scene. So, to the extent to which we are noticing the surroundings, our attention is going outwards. To the extent to which we are attending to ourselves, to the seer, the, 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 the surroundings will withdraw into the background of our awareness. We will hardly notice them because our attention is on ourselves. That's one thing to be clearly understood. So it's not, but if we, the more we attend to ourselves, the more clearly we'll be aware of other things. 
The more we attend to ourselves, the less we'll be interested in other things. So it'll automatically withdraw into the into the periphery of our awareness, so to speak. That's one thing. The other thing is about being in the present moment. Many people have a superficial understanding of what is meant by being in the present moment. For example, in Vipassana meditation, they say, be in the present. You have to, whatever action you are doing, you have to do mindfully. You have to attend to the actions. You have to, or if you're sitting with your eyes closed, you have to attend to all the, to your breathing, to the sensations in the body, to what is going on in the mind. This is not being in the present moment. This may seem to be in the present moment, but it's not. Because what is the present moment? If we, time is a flow from past to future. Between the past and the future, there is a brief moment we call present. But all, all actions seem to happen in the present. But that is not the exact present. That is only an approximate present. That is a, a small um, a small window, so to speak. Because for any action to happen, there has to be a duration. Action cannot happen without some duration. It may be a, a minuscule uh, duration, but there has to be a duration for any action or any change to take place. So the the present moment, if we can, if we think about it deeply, what is the present moment? The present moment is the interface between the past and the future. That is, if we consider, say, a second, a moment before that second is past, a moment ahead is, pre is future. So even that, that second is a, is, is a, it's, it's a moment in time. It's not the exact present. The exact present, if we go deep into it to consider what is the exact present, the exact present is an infinitesimal interface between the past and the future. Where the, where the past ends and the future begins, that is the present. But there's, no, there's actually no gap there. So if we are truly in the present, we will experience only being. We will not experience any action, any phenomena, will not experience anything other than our own being, I am. I am alone is present. All these other things, the palm trees and the, or the whatever actions we're doing, this is all happening in the flow of time, not in the precise present moment. In the approximate present moment, yes, it's happening, but not in the precise present moment. In the precise present moment, the precise present moment has no duration. So there's no scope for anything to happen. There's no scope for anything to be known. There's only scope for being. Just being and shining as we actually are. In other words, being aware of nothing other than our own being, that alone is truly being in the present. But so, then and there, there, there's, there's a, a well-known book by Eckhart Tolle, um, The Power of the Present. But does he ever go so deep into what the present, what he means by the present is what, like, like the Vipassana meditators mean by the present. The, the things that are happening in the approximate present moment, but that is, so long as we're attending to what is happening or sensations in the body or the breath or things, these are all objects. So, so this is all outward going attention. 
The inward going attention is when we're attending to our being and our being alone. That is truly being in the present. Okay, I know that you have another question, but I need to go around because we have less than 15 minutes left. And Sorry, I Ted, I just want to get the hold right on, Hold on one second, because I promised people that we would get to some spontaneous live questions and we don't have a lot of time left. So Mukta, thanks for understanding, if you will. Michael, thank you for everything. And I'm also mindful, Michael, that at the beginning you announced that you were in severe back pain. So I appreciate you sticking with Bhag us. Bhag Bhagavan takes care of these things. I was in severe back pain before we started. Until you reminded me, I've forgotten about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hope I didn't trigger a, a wrongful thought. No, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, quickly around the board here, did anybody have any questions that came up that we would like to have your input to have as much as many people as possible? David, you're raising your hand. Go ahead. Thank you, Ted. And thank you, Michael, for being with us today and prayers for your health. Mm. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Bhagavan, what does Bhagavan mean by silence or stillness? And I wonder if you can speak a little bit more about that. Uh, let us first consider what is noise. What is the first noise is the rising of ego. And all, everything, the arising of anything, everything else, it's all noise. S silence means stillness, that state in which there is no rising at all. The state of being alone is silence. So that state in which ego has subsided and consequently everything else has subsided along with it, that is what Bhagavan means by silence. In other words, silence is our own being, silence is our own reality, silence is what we actually are, it's our real nature. People think silence means, well, the most superficial understanding of silence is vocal silence. A, a slightly less superficial understanding, mental silence. If the, if the mind is relatively quiet, if the, if the mental chatter reduces, people think that's silence. No, Bhagavan is not talking about silence of speech. He's not talking about silence of mind. He's talking about the silence that is our own being, the silence that is eternal, the silence that is here and now and ever shining in us as I am. That is the true silence. We can never be away from that silence. But because we seem to have risen as ego, we seem to be surrounded by all this noise, the noise of thoughts, impressions, emotions, and so on and so forth. But underlying all this noise, is the eternal silence, which is our own real nature, and which is ever unaffected by any amount of noise. Is that a, an adequately clear answer? More than adequate. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Alogu, you've got your hand raised. What's your question for Michael? Uh, namaskaram to all. Uh, my uh, question, uh, I don't have any question, just a comment. Uh, when uh, emotions, uh, emotional disturbance uh, take over, bringing attention back to us is very difficult. Um, like Michael James said before, uh, this, this shows me that how much effort I am putting on the practice. I'm where I am. I didn't, I didn't do much progress. I have to put more effort. That, that tells me that 
I I couldn't bring my attention back when the emotions are high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, there's a beautiful verse in Akramai. Mukila mungatu mukuramahajane natura. When I say there's a beautiful verse, there are 108 beautiful verses in Akramai. Every verse is beautiful in its way, but this is particularly applicable here. The meaning of that verse is mukila mungatu mukuramahajane. Rather than being like a mirror held before a noseless man, uplift me and embrace me. That is, we are constantly failing in our efforts to hold on to self-attentiveness. So it is sometimes as if Bhagavan is just like a mirror but held before us, showing us that our own defects, showing us that we are, we are devoid of nose. That is showing us how totally unfit we are for this part, how, how totally lacking we are in true love to hold on to our own being. So the prayer, but even he's showing us our own shortcomings, our own, how we so easily get carried away by emotions, how we get so easily uh, get distracted by um, strong sensations like pain or whatever it is. All these things is, rem uh, is reminding us of our own weakness, our own the inability to follow this path. The more we recognize our own weakness and inability, the more we will depend on grace. Because it is grace, it is only by the power of grace that we can succeed in this path. As I say, grace is what has given us, but whatever little liking we have to try to follow this path has been given to us by grace. That liking is called satvasana, and satvasana is grace shining in our heart. So we need to yield ourselves to that more and more. However many times we get carried away by emotions or thoughts or this or that, it doesn't matter. We need to continue trying, perseverance. Try. We will fail any number of times. We all fail. Is there anyone, if there's anyone who who is honestly following this, uh, who, who is truly following this practice, they will be the first to raise their hands and say, I am failing every time. I seem to, I'm, a, I'm hopeless at this path. If we don't feel ourselves to be hopeless in following this path, we are not really following it because we are constantly up against the nature of the mind, which is constantly going outwards under the sway of our Barcelona. We are time and time again being swept outwards. Bhagavan didn't ask us to succeed in this path. He asked us to try. So long as we are trying, we are moving in the right direction. Uh, the very fact that we are trying to be self-attentive, doesn't matter how successful or unsuccessful, so long as we are trying, we are slowly, slowly weakening the Vishaya Vasanas and strengthening the Sat Vasana. So let us not be discouraged by our failure. The failure should encourage us to try all the more. <laughs> so That's and great. that verse I said that is Bhagavan is like a mirror held before a noseless man, but that is in order to make us more and more dependent on him because he's ever ready to uplift us. In other words, to put an end to the rising of ego. That's what he means by uplift. And embrace means to make us one with himself. He's ever ready to do so. But we need to yield ourselves to him. So it's only when we recognize our own total unfitness for this path, 
but we we cannot possibly succeed in this path by our own efforts but we learn to depend more and more on grace and the more we depend on grace the easier it will be for us to subside and to sink back into our being there's a uh, verse in um in um but uh, of Murugan uh, from Ramanyana Bodham, but Sadhuam quotes in Sadhana Saram. And in that verse, I can't remember the exact meaning of the verse, but it's something to the effect of when will, when will success arise in this path of self investigation? Only when we have wept and wept and wept with tears and melted with tears recognizing our own total inability, our own total unfitness for this path, will we finally subside and succeed in this path? So ultimately, victory in this path is assured, but the victory will not be ours. The victory is Bhagavan's victory. We, uh, as Sadhuam says in one, in one verse, but it's a Tamil verse, but he translated into English in Aranacha Vemba, a naked lie, then it would be if any man were to say that he realized the self diving within through proper inquiry set in, not for knowing but for death, this good for nothing ego's worth, tis Aranachala alone, the self by which the self is known. That is, ego will never realize itself. Ego is fit only for being destroyed. As Bhagavan says in uh, verse uh, 20 of, um, uh, of um, 20, 21 of Uladunapadu, Unadal Khan, becoming food is seeing. So only when he has totally swallowed us, are we truly, do we truly know ourselves as we actually are? But what knows ourselves as we actually are is not ourself as ego. It is he alone knows us as we actually are because he is ourself. Michael, so we have we, time for one last question if we can make it quick. And yeah, that's okay. Hand's been raised for a while. Go ahead, Kunal. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. yes. There's something wrong with the audio, though. Can you hear me now? We can hear you. Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. So, see, I'm able to observe the mental chatting all the days. But uh, when I said for the self-inquiry thing, I'm able to see that uh, when I ask the question, who am I? This question arises in the mind, but there's awareness of the mental chatter in the question as well. So what am I supposed to focus on? I mean, the one that is aware of it or? Yes. Because that awareness, you cannot find out what exactly it is. We, we need to attend to that which is aware of all these things. That is, in other words, we need to turn up. What is aware of all these things? I am aware of all these things. So we turn our attention back towards ourselves. We are not attending to any object. We are not even asking any question. We are self-investigation, as Bhagavan says. Um, in in I, I think earlier I referred to this sentence in the 16th paragraph of Nana, where Bhagavan defines what is self-investigation. Sada kalamum manate atma bil atma That means the name atma vichara refers to always keep, refers only to always keeping the mind uh, in oneself in, or, or on oneself. In other words, keeping our attention on ourself. What does it mean to keep our attention on ourself? We are not an object. We are that which knows all objects. We are the awareness 
to which all objects appear. So keeping our attention on ourselves means turning our attention away from whatever may appear back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. It's very difficult to express this in words because when we when we try to express it, that words cannot adequately, uh, words are, are, are best just pointers. So we need to consider carefully what Bhagavan has taught us. When, what does Bhagavan mean when he says we need to attend to ourselves? We need to think about it and understand for ourselves. And most important, we need to try to put it into practice. The more we try to put it into practice, the clearer it will become. Supposing you don't know how to ride a bicycle and you go to someone saying, please explain to me how to ride a bicycle. That person can give you some tips, some clues, some things, but you cannot learn to ride a bicycle just by hearing. You can hear lectures about uh, the theory of um, the center of gravity and balance and all these things. That is not going to help you to ride a bicycle. You, it's good to understand the basic principles, but the only way to learn to ride a bicycle is to get on a bicycle. And what will happen? You'll wobble and fall. And you try again. And you'll wobble and fall and you try again. Slowly, slowly you get the hang of it. Exactly the same with self-investigation. We can learn this only by trying. But in order to try, we need to be trying the right thing. We need to be understand what Bhagavan means when he says to attend to ourself. It doesn't mean to attend to the body, because this body is not ourself. It doesn't mean to attend to the prana, to the breath or to any other such thing. It doesn't mean to attend to the mind, to the thoughts, to the perceptions, to the emotions, to anything else, be memories or anything. All these are objects. It doesn't mean to attend to the workings of the intellect. These are all objects. It doesn't mean attending to the vasanas, the, the likes and dislikes and the inclination. It means attending only to that to which all these things appear. In other words, to the, to the fundamental awareness, I am, the awareness of our own being. That is what we need to attend to. That's as far as words can go. To understand what those words mean, will become clear only by thinking carefully about it and trying to apply it in practice. Is that a helpful answer? Oh, yes, but actually I've been doing that practice. Like, I'm aware that the awareness is totally aware of everything that's going on in the mind and everything. But when I turn my attention back to that awareness, oh, I'm not able to find it since it's not an object. Or it's not an object. That. But you, when you say you're not able to find it, what do you, that awareness is the I that says I am not able to find it. How can I say I am not able to find I? I mean, the mind is not able to find it, not I. The mind is Leave the mind alone. It's you who are to investigate yourself. It is I that is to investigate I. Okay, I will. I will. So we are not looking for something that is absent. We're not looking for something that we've lost. Right. We've never lost ourselves. We are looking for, we are investigating that which is ever present, our own being. Something that is, any, anything that isn't present and isn't known is not real. Because whatever appears will certainly disappear. Whatever appears and disappears is not real. Whatever is real must always exist, must always shine, must always be known. So what is the one thing that we always know? We know our own existence. I am. 
that existence is itself our awareness. That is what we need to attend to. So we're not looking for something. We're not looking for an object. We're not looking for anything that is, but we're not able to find. We are, we are not looking for anything. We are looking at ourself. Of course, it's not, ourself is not an object. So even that is, we have to use words like attend or look or these are all metaphorical because none of these words can. That is, language is very useful for talking about duality, the phenomena. But we are talking about attending to ourself, but words cannot adequately capture it. That's why when sometimes people are persisted in saying, but Bhagavan, how to do this? How to do this? But Bhagavan said, do you need to be shown the way inside your own home? You yourself have to investigate yourself and find yourself. If the way was objective, it could be shown objectively. This is not objective. It is, it, it's not even to say subjective is not correct. It is, we're going beyond the subject to the reality underlying the subject, namely our own being. There is no one, no sentient being that is not always aware I am. From the highest God in heaven to the lowest insect, every sentient being, every jiva is aware I am. Now we are not aware just I am, we're aware I am Konal, I am Michael, I am Ted, I am whoever. But the, these, these are just adjuncts. But one thing that is constant, that is, you're, you're aware of yourself as I am Kunal in waking and dream. In sleep, you're not aware of yourself as I am Kunal. You're aware of yourself as just I am. So what we are seeking to know is that fundamental awareness that is shining through all the three states, not anything that is new, not anything that is visatia. We are that near visatia, um awareness of our own being that is nevisation means it has no distinguishing features but it is what is ever present it is ourself even to say it is wrong because it makes it uh, as if it's a third person it is i i i is to attend to i it's as simple as that Michael, you're a champion. You lasted two hours and it's late in life. I'm not a champion it's all Bhagavan's doing don't blame me well, you always, you always slough off the credit, but I am going to say something that you can't slough out. You are clear. Your clarity is a hallmark, and I really appreciate Even it. Even that clarity, where does that come from? What is the source of all clarity? It can come only from Bhagavan. <laughs> okay. His You're clarity coming. is so great. Even through this clouded mind full of so many Vishaya Vasanas, his clarity is shining. That shows... It is the ultimate clarity. It is that clarity that is shining in the heart to each and every one of us at every moment, that clarity of our own being. I am. Well, let me put it a different way. A different way is I've heard other people talk about Ramana's teachings minus the clarity. <laughs> Somehow bring it, so I'm grateful. Then uh, that is not Bhagavan's teaching because the very hallmark of Bhagavan's teaching is clarity. Bhagavan is, is clarity itself. Yeah, it, it truly is. Yeah. Uh, it was a visceral reaction when I came to Ramana because of that. Because yeah, of yeah. it did. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for your questions. And uh, Michael, take a good rest <laughs> and good luck with your next group you meet with live. Yeah, well, and I've got I've got a few days rest till the next time. Good. 
and we'll Some, see you all. Somehow oh. it's a miracle how Bhagavan just gives me the energy. I mean, I was earlier, I was in so much pain. I was having, I was thinking, how am I going to manage? I was trying to do some, some writing work. I just couldn't focus on it because I was in so much pain. Somehow when we started talking, it all disappeared. So <laughs> it'll probably jump back on me again when, oh, when I, I stop. But it's all, that. that shows our whole life is everything is our life and so everything in our life is his grace all the good things that happen to us are grace all the bad things that happen to us are grace everything yes. is his grace things happen as they are meant to happen yeah they do they do yeah. we'll see you in may this year is whizzing by right. right 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 yeah. okay very much and take care for everybody we'll see as many of you who's got an inkling We'll see you maybe next week here at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings in San Diego. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. No more thank, you. thank you. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Ted. And thank you for all your good questions, everyone. Yeah, great Please questions. take care of your health. Yeah, bye. Bhagavan is there to take care of that. He's taking care of everything. I, I know that even the bad experiences are good for me, Michael, and yes. I get them. Doesn't mean yeah. I have to like them or I get them. <laughs> we should I, like them. Bhagavan says in, in verse uh, two of Aranacha Patikam, Ninishtam Enishtam, your will is my will. Imbadaku, that is happiness for me. So we should we should joyfully accept whatever, even if he puts us in hell. Okay, that's his sweet will. I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> Wonderful. I hope to get to that level. I hope to get to that level. I'm very far from that level. Don't be, don't be deceived by my, by my, um, by my talk. <laughs> it's easy to talk these things. It's only by His grace that we can actually put these things into practice. <laughs>